Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, we're welcoming Sarah Berman to read from her new book, Don't Call It a Cult. She'll be in conversation with LA writer Ashley Ray Harris. But before I introduce them, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books is open right now with limited um, in-store browsing. So please bring your masks and social distance and still practice all of the pandemic-ness of it all. But come on by. We'd love to have you. We also offer curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com, where a secret you can order the books from today's podcast as well. Sarah Berman is an investigative journalist based in Vancouver covering crime, drugs, cults, politics, and culture. She's a former senior editor at Vice and past contributor to Adbusters, McLean's, The Globe, and Mail, The Vancouver Sun, and other publications. Today, she'll be in conversation with LA-based comedian, writer, and pop culture critic, Ashley Ray Harris. So welcome, Ashley and Sarah. I'm so excited to have both of you here today. Thanks, Lance. It's good to be here. Good to meet you, Ashley. Yeah, you too. I'm I'm so excited. This is going to be a very exciting one. So Sarah, you have a reading for us today? Yeah, I'm going to read just from the beginning, just to give folks a flavor if they haven't... um, heard much about this story. So this is the prologue uh, called The Most Ethical Man, and it's in quotation marks. Keith Raniere needed sleep. That much was clear. How much sleep? Well, for decades before his arrest in March 2018, that was a point of debate. Some thought he slept only one or two hours a night, but women close to him knew he was more of a day sleeper. And on that day in March, in an upstairs bedroom of a $10,000 a week vacation rental north of Puerto Vallarta, Ranieri was napping. According to testimony at Ranieri's trial, actors Nikki Klein and Allison Mack were lounging outside on a patio overlooking an infinity pool when Mexican federal agents in bulletproof vests pulled up the cobblestone driveway. Armed with a warrant from the Eastern District of New York for sex trafficking and forced labor, the officers surrounded the property. Some of them appeared to be wearing masks and holding machine guns. It was a big deal for Klein and Mac, celebrities and recent subjects of relentless online gossip, to be staying so close to Ranieri. Five months earlier, he'd been accused in the New York Times of masterminding a strange blackmail scheme and allegations that Ranieri had sexually abused young girls were resurfacing online with a vengeance. 
The U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation wasn't quiet about its interest in Nexium, the secretive self-help company Ranieri had founded in 1998. The feds had interviewed Nexium associates in the United States and left business cards with allies in Mexico asking for Ranieri to get in touch. Despite all this, Klein and Mac had come to Mexico to show their commitment to Ranieri, whom they'd often called the most ethical man they'd ever met. Ranieri was technically a fugitive, but his hideout in Mexico resembled an expensive corporate retreat. A team of fixers had been buzzing around him, first in Punta Mita, and now at their current location, the remote beach town Chacala. Neighbors said they went on long walks and ordered expensive butter-infused coffees from a tourist bar. Testimony later revealed they communicated through prepaid disposable phones. Mac and Klein had been invited to participate in a recommitment ceremony. The plan was to show loyalty to Ranieri in the most vulnerable way possible, which might have included group sex had the cops not shown up that day. Under her clothes, each actor bore a scar in the shape of Ranieri's initials, burned into her skin with a cauterizing pen more than a year earlier. It symbolized her lifelong commitment to obeying Ranieri's every request. Before getting caught up in Nexium headlines, Nikki Klein had been best known for her role as Callie on the sci-fi drama Battlestar Galactica, while Alison Mack had lit up TV screens as Chloe Sullivan, best friend to Superman in the CW show Smallville. Those roles had become less interesting to the women as they grew committed to changing the world with Ranieri. Through thousands of hours of coursework and mentorship, Klein and Mac had learned to break out of limiting beliefs. Nexium students compared this process to Keanu Reeves taking the red pill in the matrix. No aspect of their lives was exempt from constant study, reflection, and redefinition. Ranieri taught that everything was an opportunity for personal growth, even a face-off with federal agents. But as police moved inside, at least one of Ranieri's disciples was feeling some doubts. For Lauren Salzman, the daughter of Nexium's president and co-founder, Nancy Salzman, Ranieri's arrest punctured the bubble of secrecy and deception that had protected his reputation as someone of the highest ethical standards. Salzman was in a bedroom with Ranieri when the cops came upstairs to take him into custody. As she later recalled at his trial, Ranieri hid in a walk-in closet, leaving her to face the police. They were banging on the door, she testified. The whole time I thought they could shoot through the door. As the door rattled on its frame, Salzman asked to see a warrant. Open the door and I'll show it to you, an agent replied. Salzman didn't open the door. The cops kicked it open and pinned her to the floor. With guns pointed at her, she yelped out Ranieri's name. The man known to acolytes as Vanguard, master and grandmaster, stepped out of the closet and was then cuffed on the floor and taken downstairs. For Salzman, Ranieri's arrest left a small but significant crack in the edifice he'd built. I chose what I believed we were training for this entire time, which was to choose love over everything, including the possibility of losing my life, she later testified. There was no need to send me to shield him or negotiate with them. He could have just protected all of us and just gone. 
For months, Salzman felt guilty for not doing more to protect Ranieri. It would take the better part of a year for her to realize that the flaw she saw in him that day went much deeper. It never occurred to me that I would choose Keith and Keith would choose Keith, she said. Mm. I'll leave it there. Yes, I I think that, that that opening was so brilliant when I got the chance to read it. Uh, I, I love that you start with sort of the climax of this whole story, obviously with Keith getting arrested. Uh, but for a lot of us, we'd been following the story for a long time. Uh, so just to kind of explain why I'm here, uh, I went to school near Albany. I had been following the Nexium case for forever. Uh, and back in, in the day <laughs> when I went to school in 2009, uh, there was, it was just kind of whispers. There were articles here and there about this maybe call in the next town over. And on campus, we all knew that if you wanted a free ride to Albany, the Nexium weirdos would, would drive you. Uh, and, and there was one resource, really, at, at that time that kind of came up, and that was uh, the Frank Files. Uh, Frank Parlato, who you mentioned in the book, uh, was maybe the central source of information for those of us interested in Nexium, and such a big focus of his uh, reporting and investigating is, you know, calling them out as a cult, is calling them out specifically as a sex cult and using that salaciousness to call out Keith Raniere. Uh, so knowing that, I obviously thought it was very interesting that you chose to go with the name Don't Call It a Cult. Uh, and throughout, you you don't refer to it as a sex cult. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> in that decision, I just want to make it clear that I'm not saying that Nexium doesn't fit all the characteristics of a cult. You know, uh, I'm, it's definitely not for that purpose. Um, but yeah, the title Don't Call It a Cult comes from a couple different things. First of all, when I was sort of thrown into the deep end of this story and I interviewed Sarah Edmondson about her involvement in this group that collected so-called collateral, there was, you know, branding with a cauterizing pen, you know, near her bikini line. There were all these controls on her sleep and her diet. So obviously real red flags about being a cult. She didn't want to say that it was the C word she used. <laughs> and she didn't want that on record. And she was pretty terrified actually of um, potential legal backlash uh, from the group. So I didn't quite understand that at the time. I thought that was really weird and it made me really uncomfortable. Um, but after sort of studying this group for a long time and seeing that fear, I started to understand that, wait, um, it actually seems to be more helpful to sort of describe the coercive control um, and and leave the sort of accusation that, you know, Nexium had lots of deflections and sort of um, counterpoints to that accusation. Uh, but to just describe sort of the harms and then let sort of the audience decide where they think this falls. Um, but there's a couple other reasons too. Uh, actually, during Keith Raniere's trial, the prosecution also didn't wade into whether or not this was a cult. They didn't have experts on that. Um, the experts they did bring in were domestic abuse experts. So they described coercive control in a relationship that's abusive type context. Uh, and I kind of wanted to maintain that, especially because when we were at trial, I heard from victims and I heard from the lawyers that represented them that they didn't really relate to this as 
a sex cult. Um, because it was so much more, it was about so many more things than just sex. It was control of their diets, their sleep, who they could and couldn't meet or talk to. They had to get permission for pretty much anything. So this is basic autonomy as a human being. Um, so I understood that and I thought that would be an interesting thing to sort of try was to describe the harm and exactly what was happening and to just sort of step away um, from that debate entirely. Yeah. Um, as well, if you talk to somebody who is in a group like this, you never wanna come out guns blazing saying this is a cult. Uh, you do wanna sort of come to them with good faith and say, you know, I just wanna learn more. Uh, maybe we can go to a meeting together. You don't tend to pull out the quote unquote C word. Yeah, and, and to that end, there are already sort of so many, and obviously this is such a an fascinating case that there are going to be people looking at it from every angle. Uh, you know, you obviously have the vow, which very much looks at the weirdness of the the different colors that they would wear and their, you know, weird handshakes and stuff. And you, you have seduced, which looks more at the actual coercion of women and the, you know, mind control that they were subjected to. Uh, but you, like you said, really get into the harms. And I think a lot of times when people look at just the cult aspects, they think, oh, this was a cult for rich people who could afford this type of, you know, rich, like, class. And you, if you had $15,000 laying around, yeah, you could, you know, do this thing with Keith Raniere. But when you actually look at the harms, especially the harms you investigated, that's really not the case. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain that choice uh, to really go into the victims that you chose, specifically with Daniela and Camila, who who aren't really as well known, I feel, uh, when people think mostly of, of, you know, India Oxenberg and Sarah Edmondson. Totally. So, yeah, I did want to center Daniela and Camila and um, the story of these Mexican sisters who came to Albany, they came seeking, you know, a level up in their careers and relationships. They definitely weren't coming, you know, in service to Keith Raniere. They were incredibly um, young. Daniela was like fresh out of high school, I believe. Yeah, she was 15 when she first oh. got to Albany. So these women, first of all, their identities were protected at trial. They didn't participate in any of the documentaries or podcasts. Um, and part of that is because as a victim of child sexual abuse, you know, like that is a court ordered um, kind of thing. Um, but because they were so central to the trial and to defining what exactly the crimes were in this case, I wanted to make sure that their stories were front and center, especially because some of the most insidious kinds of control and, and leverage were used on them. So their undocumented status, for example, in the United States was used to their advantage and held over their head. So if at any time Daniela said, I don't want to go along with this, or even, you know, expressed mild criticism, you know, it was put to her, well, we brought you here. And so this was encouraging, increasing, increasing commitment uh, to a point where they couldn't really make choices that went against what Keith Raniere wanted. They basically had to choose, you know, losing their families, losing their status in the United States, or going along with what Keith Raniere wanted. Yeah. 
I also think it's interesting, you know, and, and also in, in the in the piece that you read to us, uh, Keith and his beliefs are really not central uh, to your narrative. In that opening, we're really hearing about it from Lauren's perspective. Uh, could you tell me a bit more about that choice? Right. Yeah. So I have listened to, you know, it feels like hundreds of hours of Keith Ranieri. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of Keith tape out there uh, if you have not there's plenty uh, of his words you could report on. <laughs> you could you could hear how he talks, and it's definitely not genius philosopher material, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I thought that that wasn't really um, the point. What's interesting, what you know, at least kept me up in the middle of the night was like, what were they seeing? What was someone like Lauren seeing in Keith Raniere? Um, did she at any time think like, maybe this is, you know, maybe I'm being conned here, you know, maybe all of my attachments and, and things that are important to me are being kind of used against me here. Um, so I think, yes, for almost every chapter, I do try to see the story through a different woman's eyes. Sometimes it's the sister of somebody who is involved. Um, but I think keeping that perspective, keeping it about, yeah, these women and their choices and how they went from A to B to C to, to eventually being in, in this really intense kind of endpoint position, I thought that was what people needed to hear more. Yeah. And I think it brings up a more interesting point of how do we sort of hold these women accountable? They were women who turned so easily at the request of Keith Raniere against other women. And, and reading some of it is so frustrating. And, and at least with Lauren Salzman, I did kind of find empathy for her in a way that I hadn't before when I saw how much she wanted to have a child with him and how much she believed in that promise. But then when it came to someone like Nancy Salzman for me, it was still kind of a mystery? Is it still just the profit? What was it for her? How do you sort of broach that question? That's a really good question. And um, I am still crossing my fingers that after she's sentenced, her lawyer hasn't said no to me potentially talking to her someday. So fingers crossed for that. I would love to ask her. But based on what I know, what I've researched, you know, she's given several depositions in this in their various lawsuits. And as well, um, Tony Natale, a sort of ex-girlfriend and very, very early member of Nexium, has written a book. And she suggests in the program that Keith knew her deep, dark secret, that her credentials weren't actually uh, legit. Um, and so that may have been something that was held over her in the early days um, to encourage her sort of, yeah, participation and keeping in line. And I think eventually once it's, you know, your entire life, you know, she couldn't think of walking away from Nexium without potentially losing contact with her daughters or, you know, so I think the same elements uh, of sort of the other relationships that you see uh, are in play in terms of there being some kind of blackmail over her head or some kind of worst case scenario that's way worse than going along with Keith Raniere. Um, but at the same time, yeah, like Nancy Salzman, she participated in some of the very darkest stuff. She yeah. was brought in to work on Camilla when she was really young. 
Um, and I think that's why actually she flipped just before the child exploitation uh, charges were added. I think she definitely knew that she was in some way complicit. Um, and that's why she flipped. Yeah. Uh, I also love the parallel that you build in the book between these two groups of sisters. You have the Bronfmans on one end who are so incredibly rich, privileged, and are driving this machine for Keith. And then on the other end, you have Daniela and Camilla uh, and Mariana. Uh, and I love the the parallel that I felt throughout the book reading it and that the Bronfmans are these sisters who wanted to earn their own and finally, you know, earn their, their own keep and, and get get the, the praise they'd kind of lost from their father and you build that up so wonderfully. And then you also see these other two sisters who don't have these class advantages. Uh, so obviously with, with everyone always kind of assuming Nexium is this cult of mostly like rich uh, actors and actresses and stuff, uh, what was the choice to to really set up the the class narrative throughout the book? Uh, was that something you really wanted to highlight that this wasn't just you know really rich people, but was in fact uh, a lot of people who were fresh out of college who were looking for new opportunities who lost money, uh, especially with a lot of the younger uh, or earlier members. You highlight you know the the just amount of of investment they lost because Keith was just this gambling day trader. Uh, you know this wasn't just rich people who could throw this money around. Yeah, I mean there were an incredible amount of very rich people too that were drawn to the message so i don't want to discount that as definitely yeah. also a dynamic but you're right that there there was this you know uh, group of people who had big aspirations who didn't necessarily come from super comfortable backgrounds i would say actually with daniela and camila they did come from a like middle class mexican background it was just that in the United States, there was this, you know, precarity uh, around their status um, that unfortunately became just a very, a, a trap is how Danielle called it. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely wanted to address how as well, there, this was a very white passing organization yeah. And it was something that um, that they knew and that they were self-conscious about. And, and they sort of noticed, why, do, why don't people of color sort of come through here very often? And in chatting with Sarah Edmondson, you know, sort of she's reflected on that and sort of thought, well, you know, oppression might be a lived experience for them. And when they see this, you know, sort of hierarchical suffering program they're like yeah no <laughs> we're like up. oh yeah we're <laughs> like you've chosen to victimize yourself and suffering is your own choice that might not resonate with you know people of color uh, but i did love that you you do go into race and uh there is a part in the book where you mentioned that you know black people who join the program would kind of just be like no thank you this this doesn't really resonate uh, and then obviously the use of language like master and slave is obviously a test to push those boundaries. Uh, but there there was a black member of Nexium, Michelle Hatchett, who was one of the uh, most ardent supporters and I believe is still a supporter. Uh, what was it like kind of grappling with that narrative? Obviously, uh, I, I believe you had reached out to her. She doesn't participate in the book, uh, but she continues to to run websites supporting Keith Ranieri and stuff. So 
Yeah, I mean, that was a real mind bender. You know, I, was, I wasn't sure how she would react. So after the trial, I did try to reach out to her more in a fact-checking capacity. So there had been some testimony. She wasn't, her full name wasn't used uh, because she wasn't a frontline DOS master. Um, so she is considered by the courts to be a victim, um, which is interesting because she doesn't identify that way herself. Uh, she takes responsibility for everything that happened to her. Um, but yeah, she she almost did participate. Um, and I thought that would be a really interesting perspective to just see how how this fits into her brain, how this abhorrent historical, you know, um, terminology fits into her view of the world. Um, unfortunately, it didn't go the way, you know, that I'd hoped. She she sort of wanted to be able to completely veto anything that was said about her in court because, you know, it wasn't said by her and that just wasn't kind of going to work. Yeah. Um, but I think someone like Michelle, she was worked on way harder than anybody else because it is sort of narratively um, helpful and beneficial. So as with any of the women that were sort of pulled into the inner circle, um, they were usually selected for specific reasons. They were, they were helpful. Um, and so then you would have them coached really intensively. Um, Tony Natale calls it the wolf pack. Yeah. <laughs> so I use that as a shorthand because then, then when you have so many people, you know, putting on that social pressure, they're way more likely to sort of stay in line. Um, so I think that is something that did happen with the folks who, who remain. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say because it's, yeah, I haven't been able to really broach that subject with them specifically. Um, but I do, I can't remember who told me this. Uh, might be spicy to share, but I remember Pam K. Fritz who, um, passed in 2016 apparently she was so excited to have you know she would say something like oh we got a black one or something like that when uh somebody <laughs> came him. and it was just like the younger demographic definitely the Vancouver contingent would be like you can't say that like that's yeah. so gross uh they had you know maybe more familiar to to us political views but um but yeah there was a a thirst within Nexium to have representation. Yeah, and really, I, I feel like what kind of gets overlooked in the, I don't know, people's rush to say, oh, this was, you know, some just liberal sex cult, is that Nexium was really conservative. It was really much a, a patriarchal system. Uh, I, I was wondering if you could kind of, you, you highlight it really well in the book, the, the sort of systems that these women had to go through and what they were sort of put up against, I guess, when with with these, not even just from Keith and not even just like the women in DOS, but there were, you know, Jeunesse, uh, just the sort of overall indoctrination of women are lesser uh, and, and just how you could convince people who are seemingly so liberal. And so, you know, like we live in Vancouver, uh, how could, could they be so convinced of this? Yeah. It again, just a mind-bending sort of thing, because these, these concepts were often introduced as just uh, 
you know, showing people the hard reality of different gendered experiences. So if you're a man, this is, you know, all the awful things that are sort of put on you and projected on you. And if you're a woman, this is, you know, just sort of what you're socialized into. And so women with, you know, left-ish political views or not even leftist, like just normal kind of middle of the road political views would see this and, and think it's maybe progressive because it's highlighting a gendered experience, which, um, yeah, some people found valuable to just get at that and, and speak the sort of unspoken. But then with, you know, these sort of intensive experiences where people literally subjected people to misogyny and, and bullying, um, it's, it starts to get to a point where you're like, wait a second. Um, and it does sort of flip to a point where actually they're trying to impose this idea that women, you know, don't like discomfort and, and are prone to tantrums uh, and things like this. And, and I think through just sheer repetition that did come to be more real. And I think because from the beginning, a Nexium student has accepted that I don't know everything. You know, the, what I think could be totally backwards and, and I'm here to sort of learn and be exposed and I definitely am not going to like be quick to react, right? They, they would work on not reacting to things in an emotional way yeah. and learn to take them in and absorb and, and maybe even interrogate the reaction. Like if they're having a strong reaction, what's that coming from? Maybe I am part of the problem. And I feel like women, unfortunately, um, are socialized to maybe accept more often that they are the problem, which yeah. <laughs> half the time, more than half the time, I don't think that's the case. Yeah. And, and I, I think that is why Keith was able to kind of create this system around him. Uh, and I love the the dedication to the book. You you say it's dedicated to women who change their minds, uh, which I love because this is clearly something that not just we as a public are grappling with in real time. I mean, Keith was just sentenced in October of last year, but his victims are grappling with this in real time. Like you said, uh, Danielle and Camilla, they didn't participate in documentaries. Their story is really kind of just coming out. What is it like to work on this story that you know will always kind of be unfolding where there is this dynamic of maybe, you know, Michelle Hatchett will wake up one day and, and realize the truth or change her mind. What is it like to, to kind of have that openness to this story still? I mean, I definitely took that into consideration a lot uh, in terms of people's healing journeys. I've seen it with Sarah Edmondson, like over the three plus years I've known her, I have seen the difference between, you know, even a six month dis difference during, um, yeah, between our early visits and, and sort of later on that she has way more, you know, reflection on what happened to her. She's sort of relitigated all of her experiences and, and has come to a new understanding. And it's based on just having new information, right? Um, I think some of the folks who are still sort of embedded, they think that it's inconsistent for them to have a different opinion because they gave this, you know, pledge, this vow of lifetime obedience. Uh, they think it's inconsistent for them to ever 
change their mind, even if it's based on new information that changes the situation. So yeah, I did want to dedicate it to that right that we all have to change our minds um, and, and really hope that that might encourage somebody to, to sort of reflect. Um, I mean, I don't have a specific want for any of them, but I did try to keep some of the loyalists a little out of the picture just in case they yeah. did decide, you know, to go a different route. That, that was always a possibility. Um, definitely when the, um, when the dancing outside his prison came up, that's when I was like, okay, like we've got some real sticklers here. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, it, it could, it could happen. Yeah, it could. Uh, and, and just a, a final kind of to, to sum things up a bit and, and something I'm really curious about. Like I said, a lot of us have been following the story for a long time. Uh, in the beginning, there wasn't a lot of reporting that we could turn to, to actually hear about the realities of these stories. It was always sex cult, sex cult. We're hearing about branding. I want to know, you know, you were one of the first reporters who was doing real research on this, where I was like, I'm getting the actual story and not just rumors and things like that. What was it like being one of the the first female reporters to kind of dig into this, to get into this rabbit hole, to really be pulled in and to, to take it seriously uh, beyond the sort of crazy sex cult in Albany angle? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think I was just motivated by my own kind of annoyance and anger. Like I would read something and it, it would be shaming of people who are maybe into BDSM or it would have. Yeah. It were victims. It would, they would shame victims openly. And I remember reading the Frank report and they would have like, people would be making portraits of victims and, and just, it all felt so it just crossed so many boundaries and to see a reporter actually treat this story with the respect it deserved i was like finally <laughs> oh i'm so glad you thought that way but yeah i did just sort of make notes of anything i saw that i think needed sort of a counterpoint so i would go interview a bdsm educator and you know they would give me a rundown of how consent works in that situation you know it's not these women who are just sort of sick and twisted wanting to, you know, anyway. Yeah. So there were a lot of things to debunk. It gave me a lot of work to do, which was almost nice uh, just to have a lot to chew on. Um, but yeah, I, I think there are, to be fair, a lot of other reporters who did do this story, a lot of justice. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, you know, like E.J. Dixon actually and Pilar Mel Melendez Men um, for the Daily Beast, um, trying to remember a couple others, but uh, it was it was nice actually at the trial to sort of reflect with other reporters who were struggling with these questions because you didn't always know sort of what was gonna come out the next day and, and how that would land. So um, I don't yeah. wanna take all the credit, I wanna- yeah. <laughs> make it a group effort. You know, we all did try to think about this um, in, in an empathetic sort of way.
Yeah. And, and in the early days, the, of course, there were so many reporters who faced lawsuits and threats uh, from Keith Raniere and Nexium if they even reported on some of the more negative aspects. So that was another reason why it was so hard to, to find information. And now it just seems like the, the floodgates are open and we're I still think we're just going to find out so much more in the coming years about this. I think call. you're right. I think you're right with the lawsuit, especially like the uh, civil lawsuit. I think there's yet more to be revealed. Yeah. And, and we also, you know, have the vow part two. Do you see yourself maybe writing more books on this subject? Do you, you know, if, if Nancy schedules that interview, would you want to dive into this subject again? I don't think I would do another book on Nexium, but perhaps a group like it. Um, I do feel committed to the story. Like, even though it's done, I, I can't fully walk away. I do feel like I'll cover this story as it develops. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure uh, how quickly that's going to come out. The story, you know, it, it's a slow burn. Um, but yeah, we'll see what happens with um, the Vow season two. That should be an interesting thing to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And I am excited to see your continued reporting on the subject. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you, guys. I Both of you have been just... The conversation was so amazing to listen to from the background and I know our listeners at home will probably enjoy it too or at home in the car wherever they're listening to it. Um, no, this is fantastic. I'm also excited to hear your continued uh, work on this and your future work and whatever because I feel like all of it will be interesting. So thank, yeah. thank you so much. And as a last thing that we usually do, um, do you have any statements or not statements, but like anything you want to say to the independent bookstore community at all? Both of you? Uh, just thanks for keeping on, keeping on. Thanks for listening. Um, yeah, it's so nice to know there's other book readers out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I will specifically say, go buy, don't buy, don't call it a cult. Go get this book as someone who has just done so much reading on Nexium. This is really one of the best books on the topic. How you put it together is amazing. The details, as I, I thought I knew every detail and there were still new things I learned from this. And just some of the beautiful details you leave in there. I like the, the butter infused coffee, just like that little <laughs> line to let you know, these are like keto assholes. I just love the, the framing. It's a wonderful book. Your book readers go buy it. <laughs> no, like you're right. When, I, when you said that in the reading, I was like, Oh my, for some reason I think worse than like other parts of the book, which like probably doesn't say great things, but you know what? It just like, I was just like, oh my asshole. <laughs> but it's just like those little hints where you're like, oh, I see what kind of psychos yeah. we're working with here. Like, I see. How <laughs> can you need to get a butter in, oh God. As like a past coffee barista, oh God. I. It's a shorthand for sure. I would. Yeah. Oh yeah. And okay. it's just, just wonderful little things like that throughout the book. I, I loved it and I just want more people to know about this story and I am so thankful this book exists for people to learn about it. So oh, thank you God. again. Go buy it. You could definitely buy, don't buy it, don't call it a cult. I was gonna say don't buy it a cult. Um, yeah, you can you can buy, don't <laughs> call it a cult at your local bookstore. We're selling it at Skylight Books. You come in or you can order it at www.skylightbooks.com and get it shipped to you or just even come pick it up. Stop by, say hi, you know, all that fun stuff. So this has been Sarah Berman and Ashley Ray Harris. Thank you guys so much. This has been fantastic. And thank you to all my beautiful listeners for 
being out there and just supporting us. Um, yeah, and have a good, have a beautiful rest of your day. I'll say that. Thank you guys again. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.